But this morning, uh, I just want to say thank you for being here and good morning, which is very neat for me to say because it's the first time that I've been able to say good morning uh, so far. We've been meeting on Wednesday nights, but this is our very first Sunday morning service here at Community Church, so welcome. I'm so glad that you could be here for it. We began our midweek Bible study on Wednesday, September the 1st. And now only 13 short weeks later, we get to worship together and pray together and study the Word of God together on Sunday mornings. What a privilege that is. What a blessing it is to do that. Just to be a part of what God is doing here at Community Church. And trust me, He is doing some things here. And He's doing them through you. So praise the Lord for that. But we left off last time at the end of chapter 2 in our verse-by-verse study through the book of 1 John. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to continue our study in the book of 1 John. But John was encouraging his readers in chapter 2 to abide in Christ. He was telling us to practice righteousness so that when Christ appears, we can have confidence at His return and not be ashamed. In fact, he said, everyone who practices righteousness is born of Him. In other words, born of Christ. So the believer's confidence and the believer's assurance when Christ comes is going to be twofold. Okay? First, it's going to be knowing that Christ is the righteous one. That's 1 John 2, verse 1. And secondly, it'll be by following Christ in righteousness. Okay? That's chapter 2, verse 29. In other words, if you know Christ and are walking with Christ, then you can have confidence in the day of His return not concern. Okay? So John is going to continue to prepare his children in the faith here, the children of God, for the coming of the Lord in chapter 3, and especially in the first three verses we see. And he does so by assuring us of the love and the hope that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he's going to address sin in the life of the believer. That's going to be in verses 4 through 9. Next, in verses 10 through 23, John's going to address the need for believers to show love to one another. Okay, And then he shows us the result of our loving obedience toward our Savior. And that whatever we ask, whatever we ask, we receive from Him. Why? Because we keep His commandments and do those things that are pleasing in His sight. That's verse 22 of chapter 3. And then lastly, in verse 24, John gives believers even more assurance. Do you see a theme here? He gives us even more assurance by giving them an external way and an internal way of knowing that we're saved. We can have that assurance that we belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. So would you pray with me one more time quickly and we'll get into the text. Lord, we love you. We thank you for this morning. What a beautiful morning you have given us to launch our Sunday morning service together. Lord, uh, we thank you for the scripture that we're going to be in this morning. I pray, Lord, that through the power of your spirit, you would illuminate our mind and illuminate our hearts with the truth of the word of God. Use it, Lord, to draw us closer to you this morning, we pray in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Amen. So let's read the text. First John chapter three, starting in verse one, says, Behold, what manner of love the father has bestowed on us that we should be called children of God. Therefore, the world does not know us because it did not know him. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it's not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope in him 
purifies himself just as he is pure. Whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. And you know that he was manifested to take away our sins, and in him there is no sin. Whoever abides in him does not sin. Whoever sins has neither seen him nor known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. He who sins is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. Whoever has been born of God does not sin, for his seed remains in him, and he cannot sin, because he's been born of God. Verse 10. In this the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. For this is the message that you heard from the beginning, that we should love one another, not as Cain, who was of the wicked one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his works were evil and his brothers righteous. Do not marvel, my brethren, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. He who does not love his brother abides in death. Whoever hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Verse 16. By this we know love because he laid down his life for us, and we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. And by this we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before him. For if our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and knows all things. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence toward God. Verse 22, and whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do those things that are pleasing in his sight. And this is his commandment, that we should believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and love one another as he gave us commandment. And lastly, verse 24, Now he who keeps his commandments abides in him, and he in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the Spirit whom he has given. Amen. So there is a lot there, and we're not going to get to all of it, but we're going to try to hit some of the high points for sure in chapter 3. But starting back in verse 1, as we go back through it verse by verse, Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called children of God. Therefore the world does not know us because it did not know Him. Now I want to focus just on that very first sentence for a moment. John said, Behold. What manner of love the Father has bestowed on us. Now, that word for behold is a Greek verb, okay? And it means to take heed, okay? It means to see with both your eyes and with your mind. It means to become acquainted with, in other words, okay? So it's a totally different word, for example, than the word um, for behold that John used to quote John the Baptist when he first saw Jesus. You remember that in John one twenty nine. Right. And we're going to talk more about that in a couple of weeks. But John the Baptist, he said, behold, meaning look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So John wanted people to turn and to look and recognize the Savior of the world. But here the Apostle John is saying, I want you to see not just with your eyes. okay, not just with your eyes. I also want you to see with your mind. I want you to take heed and to know. I want you to become acquainted with this very, very unique kind of love that the Father has bestowed on us. Because 
This kind of love, it's the kind of love that actually qualifies us to be called children of God. Think about that. You see, this kind of love, this manner of love is very unique because it's not self-serving. Not at all. It's self-sacrificing. This kind of love, it's undeserved, okay? It can never be earned, so it has to be gifted. Because this kind of love that John's talking about here is agape love. That kind of love is the kind of love that God has for his children, okay? And the kind of love that he has to bestow upon us. In other words, again, it is a gift that has to be given because it's utterly impossible for us to get this kind of love any other way, okay? But John's saying, you know what? God does love you like this. God does love you with this kind of love. In fact, he loves us unlovable sinners so much that he actually adopts us as his sons and daughters in the faith as his own. And he calls us his children. Think about that. Man, that is amazing to me. Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called children of God. So again, the manner of love that John's describing here, it's a different kind. Okay, this is a different sort of love. It's a love that's granted. It's given by our Heavenly Father to His children, and there is no other love like it in the world. So this morning, believer, I hope you know how much you are loved by your Heavenly Father. I hope you know that. John says, I want you to behold it. I want you to understand it. I want you to get acquainted with this kind of love. He says the world doesn't understand it because they don't know God, right? But you do. So get to know this kind, this manner of love that's going to give you the confidence that you need today to live for Christ and the hope that you need for the future to live for Christ. All right, verses 2 and 3. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it's not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when He is revealed, meaning Christ, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. Verse 3, and everyone who has this hope in Him purifies himself just as he is pure. So here we see both present truth and future truth. Okay, we see both. The truth for today is this. One, we are loved by God. That's a true statement. Two, we are children of God. Three, we have hope. And four, we purify ourselves because Christ is pure. That's today's truth. That's present truths. That, that's our situation as believers. Okay, we get to hold onto those truths. Now, let me ask you, Based on that, what would you rather have other than that, right? I mean, what would you rather have than the love of God bestowed upon you? The term child of God as a description of you and the hope of Christ in you. What would you rather have? That right there should make us want to purify ourselves and begin living for the God who loves us like that. But it doesn't stop there, does it? Right? Because, we, again, we have truth for tomorrow. We have a future truth as well, a truth that is coming and a truth that we should be preparing for. Okay? John says that Christ will be revealed, and when he is, we shall be like him. We're going to see Christ exactly the way he is, John said. And I love this because part of what John is doing here is he's admitting the mystery of all of this. And I really like that. He says, you know what? I don't have any idea what we're going to be like, okay? Because it's not been revealed yet. But I know this, when Christ is revealed, we're going to be like him. We're going to be like him. Now let's think about that for just a minute, okay? 
John. This is the same guy that wrote the book of Revelation. Okay? And he writes this in the very first verse of Revelation 1. He says, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to him to show his servants the things which must shortly take place. Okay? And of course, in this book, God reveals all kinds of things to John, doesn't he? Many things. We see angels. We see a woman. We see a child. We see a dragon. We see a scroll. Okay, we see trumpets and seals. We see a lamb and a beast. We see bowls of judgment and a river of life. But you know what? We never see what we will be like when Christ is revealed. Interesting. I think that's fascinating. You know, it's almost like God is withholding a surprise for us. Like there's a surprise coming. And maybe it's just the most important part of our future. I don't know. Because after all of these years of struggling with our sin, the hills and the valleys, the ups and the downs, right, of our sanctification, we have now finally come to the end and we get to be like Him. We get to be like Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Now, the Holy Spirit evidently told John, that's all you need to know right now. That's enough, right? But I'm here to tell you that is enough. That is all that we need to know right now because one day we will see Christ and we will be like Christ. So let that give you hope this morning. And let that encourage you to purify yourself just as He is pure. Verse 4. Whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness and sin is lawlessness. So here, John begins to address sin in the life of the believer. He says that if you sin, then you're a lawbreaker. Okay, Because breaking the law is Sin. Now remember, Paul said this in Romans chapter 7, verse 7. He said, if it weren't for the law, then I would not have known sin. Okay, so the law is actually a good thing for sure, but breaking the law is sin. So essentially, here's the point. If we have no regard for God's law whatsoever, then we have no real regard for God. That's basically what he's saying, okay? I like what John Stott said. He said, we often fail in the battle against sin, Because we won't call it for what it is. It's lawlessness. An offense against the great lawmaker, God. Instead, we like to say things like, well, you know, if I've done anything wrong or if I've made a mistake or two, Lord, you know, then forgive me. He says, no, call it for what it is. It's sin and it's lawlessness. So the first steps toward holy living is to recognize the true nature and wickedness of our sin. And to that I say, amen. Let's look at verse 5. And you know that he was manifested to take away our sins, and in him there is no sin. So you see, Christ was manifested. In other words, he was made known to us for a reason, to take away our sins. Take them away. Yet far too many of us still want to dabble in it, right? But Christ came to take them away. Why is that? Why do we still want to dabble in sin? I think John is saying, look, if the pattern of your life, if the reoccurring theme of your life is one of lawlessness and sin, then it's quite possible that you're not in Christ because in him there is no sin. Guys, the words of Scripture in conjunction with the pattern of your life should either give you hope or tell you that you need help. Okay, and just a nickel's worth of free advice here. If you can read through the entire book of 1 John like we've been doing here and be indifferent about it, then I would venture to say you may need help. Okay, You need Christ Jesus. Because look at verses 6 and 7. Whoever abides in him does not sin. Whoever sins has 
neither seen him nor known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. So again, the idea here is this, and this is very, very important. The idea here is that either habitual sin or habitual righteousness can be used as an indicator for true salvation. Okay? John said, let no one deceive you. In other words, read it for yourself. And then take an honest evaluation of your life in light of the Word of God. Okay? And then tell me what you see. It's a good question to ask yourself, what am I practicing? You know, that's a good question to ask. What am I practicing? Because we tend to get good at those things that we practice, don't we? And so we practice sin, we're going to get good at it. We practice righteousness, we're going to get good at it. So what am I training for? Am I training for this world or the next? Verses 8 and 9. He who sins is of the devil. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. Whoever has been born of God does not sin, for his seed, meaning Christ's seed, remains in him, and he cannot sin because he has been born of God. Okay, so those of us who are training for this world and living for those things in it and of it, we're really just living for the devil. That's what this amounts to, okay? In fact, it's even worse than that because John says they are of the devil. In other words, they belong to him, okay? They're not children of God at all. But John says, you know what? Christ came to destroy the works of the devil. And therefore, real children of God will no longer find pleasure in them. He says, whoever's been born of God does not sin, for his seed remains in him, and he cannot sin because he's been born of God. So you see, someone who is truly born again, truly born of God, their practice habits begin to change, don't they? Their desire for sin, it begins to wane because the seed of Christ remains in them now. Paul said this in Galatians 4, 6. He said, and because you are sons... God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So my friend, if the cry of your heart is not Abba, Father, then the seed of his son may not be in you. I mean, I don't know how else to say that. I think the word of God is very clear. What you practice reflects what you desire. Do you desire God or do you desire the things of this world? What you practice, another way to say it would be what we practice is who we are, right? I mean, Jesus said in Matthew 7, verse 18, a good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. So if you're from the South, you might say it like this, the proof is in the pudding. That's how we used to say that, right? Verse 10, in this, the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. So here, John equates practicing righteousness with loving our brother. Now, some people may say, you know what? I've known people that aren't even Christians and they still love their family and they still love their neighbors and on and on. And of course, that might be true. I don't disagree with that at all, but I would argue that they love them with a different kind of love, okay? What did John say in verse 1? We already looked at it. Behold, what manner, what kind of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called children of God. You see, God's idea of love and the world's idea of love are two completely different things. 
Completely different. God's love is self-sacrificing and always righteous. However, the world's love, by contrast, is both prideful and selfish. Okay? And John gives us an illustration of that in verses 11 and 12. He writes, For this is the message that you heard from the beginning, that we should love one another, not as Cain, who was of the wicked one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his works were evil and his brother's righteous. So man, what a lesson we can learn right here. And we're going to study this a little more thoroughly in our community group this week on Wednesday as well. But here's a question I think we should all ask ourselves based on this passage right here. What is it that motivates my heart? What is that? I mean, even if I do try to obey God, why do I do it? What is it that's working within my heart? Is it pride? Love? Is it anger? Is it greed or hate like it was for Cain? We see that in Genesis 4 and Jude 11. But remember, James chapter 1, verse 20 says, For the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. So here's what I believe. I believe Abel offered his sacrifice in faith, and Cain did not. Okay? In other words, their hearts were in two different places. Two different places. The Lord told Cain in Genesis chapter 4, verse 7, If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, then sin lies at the door. And its desire is for you. But you should rule over it. But Cain couldn't do it, could he? He could not rule over that sin. His envy toward his brother outweighed his desire to be right with God. And hate took over his heart. And he sinned. So what about us? We need to ask that question. Clearly, God's desire is that we love one another. Okay? Yet sin is lying at the door of our heart and its desire is for us. Okay? So which way are we going to go? What is my heart's desire? I'd venture to say this, that if we truly are in Christ and His seed remains in us, that's verse 9, then we will rule over any sin that might try to overtake us just like God told Cain He should do. Okay? However... If we are of the devil, as John said in verse 10, then our desire for sin will match its desire for us. Let me say that again. Our desire for sin will match its desire for us. That's how that works. Okay, so the point John is making is this. The display of our actions will reveal the direction of our heart. Look at verses 13 and 14. Do not marvel, my brethren, if the world hates you. We know that we've passed from death to life because we love the brethren. He who does not love his brother abides in death. So John is saying, look, don't be surprised at the world's response to your faith. Okay, don't get shook about that. Don't be surprised if they actually hate how you love. Because true and biblical love, it just it doesn't look like the world's kind of love. Not at all. That's because the Bible, when the Bible speaks of love, it speaks of a righteous Love, not some sort of made-up, touchy-feely kind of love. No, that kind of love just runs around expecting everybody to accept it, even if it's sin. That's not biblical love, not at all. Paul said, love does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in truth. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 6. So the world doesn't love like we do. No surprise there, right? They actually hate righteous love. But honestly, why wouldn't they? 
I mean, why wouldn't they? John is saying they are still abiding in death. Okay? But not us. Not us, believers. We have passed from death to life, man. We're different. Okay? We have been made new. I like what Pastor David Guzik says. He says, We shouldn't be surprised when the world hates us, but we should be surprised when there is hatred among the body of Christ. Amen. And therein lies the difference, okay? You see, hatred among the body of Christ, hatred among believers, that's considered to be heart murder, according to Scripture. Matthew chapter 5, verse 22. And those who hate their brother or hate their sister in the Lord, well, then they're actually no better off than Cain was who actually killed his brother, right? So don't expect the world to act like Christians, but at the same time, we should never act like the world. It goes both ways. Verse 15. Whoever hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. So heart murder is the same as physical murder in many, many ways. Okay? Think about that. Hate. Hating is the same as murdering somebody physically on a lot of different levels because both types of murder are going to isolate people. They're going to cut them off from fellowship. And it's going to eventually completely end a relationship. Okay? I like what Spurgeon said here. And the reason why, the reason why they both act in that same way is because they both abide in death, John said. But Spurgeon said, every man who hates another has venom, the venom of murder in his veins. He may never actually take the deadly weapons into his hand and destroy life. But if he wishes that his brother were out of the way, if he would be glad, if no such person ever existed, that feeling amounts to murder in the judgment of God. I think he's right. But John is saying this. He's saying that's not the kind of love we've been given. Not at all. Okay, therefore, that's not the kind of love that we should be showing to one another. Verse 16. By this we know love. Because he laid down his life for us. And we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Okay, so here we see the clear biblical definition of love right here. Love is so much more than lip service. So much more than that. Love requires action. Okay? Love is not just some sort of mental assent. It's more than just an appeal. It's more than acceptance. Okay? It's sacrifice. That's what biblical love is. It's the kind of love that Jesus Christ showed to us. It's about giving without expecting anything in return. Okay, it's about giving our all, in fact, while at the same time expecting nothing in return. I like what Elizabeth Elliot said. She said, love is willing to be inconvenienced. I like that. Guys, love should cost us something. And it should benefit those that we give it to. And we can see in the pages of Scripture that no one gave more than our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, and no one benefits more than those who put their faith in Him. Paul said in Romans 5.8, he said, But God demonstrates His own love toward us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's right. So love is to be demonstrated, right? And those who have known this kind of love, something's going to happen. They're going to demonstrate that kind of love to one another. The kind of love that God gives to us will be the kind of love that we demonstrate toward one another. Verse 17, but whoever has this world's goods 
and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? Now, I think a good way to apply this verse right here to our own life would be like this. It would be to say it just like this. What do I have that someone else needs? It could be money. It could be time. I don't know. It could be a number. of. It could be anything, right? But what do I have that someone else needs? And before we say, oh, oh, but I need that thing too. Before we say that, remember what John just said in verse 16. We also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. You see, to lay down our lives for the brethren is to put their life before our own. Just like Christ Jesus did for us, right? And by the way, Christ has already promised to supply all of our needs. You can read about that in Philippians 4.19. So you don't have to worry about your needs being provided as a believer. What we got to worry about is, does someone else have a need? And can I help provide that, right? Now, I think we should point something else out here. Because if we don't, we can get off the rails pretty quick. Now, John did not say, give all your money and possessions away to everybody who has a need. He didn't say that. He didn't say, give all your stuff away and then just go live in complete poverty so that you can prove your love to me. No, not at all. Listen to what he said. He said, do not shut up your heart from a brother in need, right? Big difference. Big difference. Because one view can lead you to pride and the other view can lead you into humility. So here's the deal. Am I willing to give away whatever God wants me to give away to a brother or sister in the Lord that has a need? Am I holding everything within my possession with an open hand? Or do I have a tight-fisted grip on it? It belongs to the Lord, right? We're just the managers of it. So am I holding it with an open hand? Where is my heart? Some people might say, well, you know what? That person over there, they don't really need it because, you know, if they were just a little more wise with their money, They didn't blow it on lotto tickets and things like that or whatever. They would have plenty of money. Wait just a minute. Okay, wait a minute before we say that. Please listen to this. God is not asking you to judge your brother's heart or your brother's motive. He's asking you to judge your own. That's what he's telling us to do in Scripture. Verse 18, my little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. That's right. Love is a form of action as much as it is a form of expression. Okay. Love does things. But notice here that love always does the right things. Okay. Biblical love is demonstrated in righteousness or as John says here, in truth. Okay. And this is where the believer We've got to use our God-given discernment here when meeting a need, okay? For example, if the beggar on the street out there that you've been giving to has now come to you a third time for money while smoking a cigarette and talking on an iPhone, it may not be wise to give him any more money, right? I mean, it was good that your heart was in the right place. At first, you were willing. You gave him the benefit of the doubt and so on. But the truth is... That beggar doesn't need any more of your money. Okay, so keep a soft heart, but also be smart, right? we got to have a sound mind. John said, love in deed and in truth. Verse 19, and by this we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before him. So once again, 
The advice that John is giving to believers here is in order to assure our hearts. I love that. John writes a lot in this book so that we as believers in Christ and followers of the Lord Jesus can be assured. Assurance is a big deal in Scripture. Pastor Guzik writes, who wants to wait until it's too late to know if they're really saved or not? Amen. No kidding. So John, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes to assure our hearts. We can have assurance today. You know, my sister-in-law, who recently trusted in Christ, she's a relatively new believer, told us just a few weeks ago, she said, you know what? I used to hate, and I used to be angry all the time. But now I love people. Amen. And she couldn't hardly speak a word about the Lord without crying. It was beautiful. That, my friends, is an assured heart before God. Right? Hate has been converted to love. Amen. And those are words that are consistent with somebody who is of the truth, as John said. Look at verse 20. For if our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and knows all things. So here we see that not all heart condemnation is from God. That's important. In other words, it's one thing to have a clear conscience before God. That's a good thing. Okay, but if you have repented of your sins, and if you have placed your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ to save you, then listen, don't even let your heart tell you any different. You're saved. Okay, the Bible says you're born again. Too many believers continue to carry the weight of their sin. And their shame and their guilt, my friend, if that's you, let it go. Let it go. God is greater than your heart. Don't buy the lie. Satan is the accuser of the brethren, according to Revelation 12.10. And our hearts are desperately wicked, according to Jeremiah 17.9. So stop listening to the lies and start believing the word of God. You can believe that. God is greater, the word says. So trust in him and trust in his word. Charles Spurgeon said, sometimes our heart condemns us, but in doing so, it gives a wrong verdict. And then we have the satisfaction of being able to take the case to a higher court. For God is greater than our heart and knows all things. Amen. You can believe what the word of God says about you. Even when you can't trust your own heart. Verse 21. Beloved, if your heart does not... If our heart, rather, does not condemn us, we have confidence toward God. So this is where we see the beauty of a clean and clear conscience before God. It is beautiful. And we know that a clear conscience before God equals confidence toward God. Okay? But since our hearts can sometimes be deceiving, we see that, we know that, then again, we need to have discernment. And that discernment comes from where? The Word of God. That's where our discernment comes from. So the first question for any Christian to ask themselves in any situation should be this. What does the Word of God say about that? What does God have to say about that in His Word? Rather than how do I feel about it? Too many times the first question that pops up in our mind when we're into a situation that's dicey is how do I feel about that? No. The question is, what did God already say about it in his word? Verse 22, and whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do those things that are pleasing 
in his sight. Amen. So this is where the words of the believer and the deeds of the believer all come together, right here. When we are asking for things that are pleasing in his sight. Why? Because we are doing those things that are pleasing in his sight. Okay, so when our conversations with God line up with our obedience to the commandments of God, then guess what? We have a promise that we're going to receive exactly what we ask for. Why? Because when we walk in a way that pleases God, we will also pray in a way that pleases God. Our prayers will change. We're going to ask for the right things, right? Sacrificially, not selfishly, in other words. Say, we're going to pray in a way that pleases God. Our prayers will become like our love. They're going to be others-centered. They're going to be sacrificial, not self-centered and superficial. Verse 23, And this is His commandment, that we should believe on the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as He gave us commandment. So step one in following the commandments of God is to believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the first command. And I hope you know this morning that obedience to the gospel is a command. It's not a suggestion. Scripture never suggests that we believe. It commands us to believe. And those who do not believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, well, they're actually disobeying a command of God, right? And there are grave consequences for that. Paul told the men of Athens this in Acts 17. He said, truly, these times of ignorance God overlooked, okay? But now commands all men everywhere to repent. Because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. That would be Jesus. He has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. So you see, the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ should bring hope. It should bring assurance to each and every believer. To everyone who has obeyed, the command to believe on the name of Jesus. However, it should also strike fear in the hearts of everybody who chooses to rebel against God's command to believe. Lastly, look at verse 24. John gives us two ways that we can be assured of our salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, Now he who keeps his commandments abides in him, and he in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the Spirit whom he has given us. So John gives us both external evidence and internal evidence here that we belong to Christ. So externally, if we're keeping God's word, we know that we are abiding in Christ and he is abiding in us. Okay, and internally, the Holy Spirit within us will confirm that we belong to God. Remember Paul said in Romans 8:16, the spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. So we have both external and internal evidence that we belong to Christ. Now John's going to go on in the next chapter and further define discernment for us. But what's important for us to discern right now is whether or not we are in Christ. We need to start there. If we are, if we are actually and truly in Christ, then our love for God and for His children will be demonstrated. Okay? It will happen. Our hearts will be in the right place. Our faith will result in obedience to God's Word. And the Holy Spirit of God will assure us that we are His. Those are the promises that we see in Scripture. 
Because believer, I can tell you this. God does not want you to live in confusion. He does not want his children to be confused. He wants you to be assured. Okay. And with such clear teachings that we have from scripture, we can know that he most certainly does not want anyone to die confused. He wants us to live assured and he wants us to die with that same assurance that we have in Christ Jesus. So let these words from scripture sink into your heart this morning. And then do something, right? Follow the Lord accordingly. So if you've never trusted in Christ to save you, for example, then follow the first command. Believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. That's verse 23. And if you have believed on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ for your salvation, you know that you're born again. Then I want you to rest in this truth this morning. This is the whole point of the message this morning for you, believer. Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called children of God. Wow. Thank the Lord for that this morning. We love you, Lord, and we thank you for this time together in your word. We thank you for giving it to us. We thank you for speaking to us clearly through your spirit. And through the words that you have given the Apostle John this morning, thank you for the assurance that we find in Scripture. Thank you for the straight talk. Because your word, when we read it, especially First John, we can, we can either glean hope and assurance or, or it can tell us that we need help, that we need to be born again, that we need to confess our sin or get right with you in some way. I just thank you, Lord, for how you... Speak to us with such clarity in your word that tells us exactly what steps we need to take with you. So I pray, Lord, this morning, as we have a time of response here, as we have a time of quiet reflection and prayer and consideration of what you have taught us today, Lord, my prayer is that through your Holy Spirit, you would minister to our hearts, that you would reveal to us any sin that needs to be confessed, that you would reveal to us our situation with you. Where are we in relationship with you? Do we have a relationship with you? And if so, are we walking with you? Does our love prove that? Are we loving like we have been loved? You have given us a unique kind of love. You have bestowed on us this manner of love that's sacrificial, So are we loving like that? Do we love our brothers and sisters like that? So during our time of response here this morning, Lord, please just have your way. Minister to our hearts as only you can. Help us to get right with you, whatever that looks like, so that we can leave this place today and be more beneficial for you in the workplace and in the home and all of the places that you send us throughout the week to be salt and light. And we ask that you would do this in faith, And in Jesus' holy name, amen.